Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to start Article 12 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the history and background of this very unique article in the Formula of Concord, discussing other factions, heresies, and sects. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Jaime Nava, he is the pastor of Concordia Maplewood in Missouri. That's the St. Louis area. He's also a lieutenant junior grade reserve chaplain for the United States Navy. Pastor Nava, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's certainly great to have you back on. And as we jump into this article here today in my little setup there, I said that this is really a quite a unique article in the formula of Concord. I mean... I was even thinking about the show that I did last week when I had Pastor Finnern on and how we were looking at kind of the closing paragraphs of Article 11, paragraph 22 and 23. And I think we were kind of using that as a summary for Article 11. But as I thought about it more as the week went on, it seems to me that that's really like a summary for the whole formula of Concord. And they're really wrapping up their confession there all together in the formula of Concord itself. And then it's like this Article 12 is just a tag on. They have this beautiful confession uh, that's centered on Christ and the gospel. And then they jump in here with Article 12. And it's like, and oh yeah, here's a bunch of other things that we also just want to briefly address a little bit here. So as we kind of have this very unique article, go ahead and give us a little setup. Why this article? What is this article about? Kind of give us the bird's eye view, if you will. Yeah, so you do have a second conclusion at the end of this article, Article 12, which really does overall bring everything together. So it's almost like you have the conclusion after 11, you have another one after 12, and it says... All these things, we will stand before Christ himself, believing that what we teach and confess is the truth of God's word in this formula and in this book of Concord. It's, again, another summary. When it comes to this article itself, the Lutherans were looked upon as creating a gigantic fracture. There was no neat cut between Roman Catholic and Lutheran. It was more like you snapped something and all of these splinters went flying off. And so Luther and Lutherans get accused of creating all of these other factions outside of Roman Catholicism. So if you go historically back, you've got the Eastern Orthodox Church splitting from the Roman Catholic Church, both the popes condemning each other, or the Pope and Patriarch, which is, uh, it's not funny, but it is. And then you fast forward to Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism, or Protestantism, if you want, and there's a snap there, and then you see other groups kind of splintering off of, if you will, maybe Lutheranism, if you want to put it that way, although it didn't take all that long for that to occur. And so Lutherans tend to get accused of being lumped together with a bunch of heretics, ultimately, which is what, I'm not using the word, this the it's, it's in the formula of Concord here, people who are completely contradictory to the Word of God. And so the Lutherans, in this case, in the formula, are saying, let's put on the brakes. We not only have the rest of, of the Book of Concord saying what we believe, teach, and confess that ties us together, but we're also not like these other folks who are way off base. We didn't cause this. We don't confess this. They are very different than what we believe, teach, and confess. Well, and I like how you said there, this is 
the word that we use in our confession, heresy. And I think sometimes even the way that you talked about it there, it's like we get a little hesitant about using that word because it feels mean and nasty. And well, let's talk about what the word means for a minute, right? So the, the word just simply means different teaching. So heresy itself really just means that it is a break, that word that you were even using, from orthodox teachings. And this is something that we bring up on this show from time to time, but maybe don't discuss enough that, you know, sometimes people talk about Christians in terms of being conservative Christians or liberal Christians, and those are really political terms. And sometimes our teachings will run alongside certain political ideologies. I don't want to go down that rabbit trail right now. But what we should really be discussing when we're talking about the Christian faith is that there is orthodox, the right praise, right prayer, right teaching according to Scripture. And that's what the Lutheran confessors from Luther forward, all of them are concerned with is being orthodox. And we've really highlighted that quite a lot on this show of how we bring in the church, well, Scripture itself, the church fathers, and then show that continuity all the way through. And then you get heterodox, which is related to this word heresy, that is a different teaching, right? Hetero, we, we definitely see that in like heterosexual, right? Different sexes come together to form a marriage union, for instance. And so heterodox is a different prayer or praise or a different teaching. And so heresy is really, yeah, it's just saying, hey, you're giving a different teaching than what the Orthodox Church has all along. And so as some folks were associating themselves with Lutherans here, we we're like, now, wait a minute. They have heterodox teachings. They have heresies. They, they are other factions. They are not associated with us. And some of them, as we'll talk about, and as we have discussed in just a previous couple articles, you have the Anabaptists following Zwingli, who early on was like, oh, yeah, we're, we're with you in the Augsburg Confession. And it's like, okay, let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Oh, we're not with you there. Well, let's talk about baptism. Oh, we're not with you there. Right, right. Okay, so maybe you're not with us. Right? right, yeah. So go ahead and lay some of that out for us. Yeah, uh, I think, so as we're accused of dividing, really Luther's goal, he didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? He didn't say, if it looks and smells Roman Catholic, get rid of it. What he was trying to do originally, especially with the 95 Theses, and then as his, his theology developed and grew and blossomed, if you will, is to get the church not to be Roman, but to be Catholic. And in the sense that there's a, a belief, that there's a faith, that there's a teaching that is bigger than the individual, bigger than a specific location, bigger than a specific time. There's a theology that is a blanket across space and time that we become a part of. And so Luther was trying to get the church back into that but, you know, I mean, there are so many socioeconomic situations and things going on that, that things fractured, not because of Luther, but because of the way things were already going. I think some of the stuff in the Augsburg Confession really ties in at the very beginning of this whole thing. So we're at the end, but I'm pointing back to the beginning because it's here that you see a lot of places will start to veer off in a heterodox or even worse and down a heretical line. So you have Article 1, God. Who is God? At the very end, in, in this article, you have the anti-Trinitarians, right? Which is where we started with in the Augsburg Confession. Now I'm going way, way back to the Augsburg Confession, Article 1, God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one substance. If you want to read more of what we believe on this, then, then check out the Athanasian Creed. You'll definitely get it all there. Article 2, Original Sin. This one is also really big because if you get this wrong, then you're going to get other things wrong. Article 3, who Jesus is. Article 4, justification, which is like our shining article of you know the Book of Concord. Article 5, you would think. So we've got God, sin, Jesus, justification. We're saved by grace through faith. Now it's time to live a good life. That's not where the confessors go. They go to the ministry. How do we receive this justification? Through word and sacrament ministry. And then you go into new obedience in Article 5. And so you can go from there through the Augsburg Confession, but I think if you mess up these first articles, then you're going to get 
everything else wrong. And that's what we see in Article 12 are people that, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church definitely gets original sin wrong. They say we're wounded. The Calvinist teachings, they definitely get, get some things wrong, like, you know, once saved, always saved type of thing. And so, you know, we don't, we don't get into that. But in this case, with Article 12, these people are so out of bounds because the Roman Catholic Church still has sacraments. And the Calvinist Church still has sacraments, and they both will baptize babies. In this case, these people, they throw everything out because well, who God is and original sin, they have a complete misunderstanding of what's going on there. And this is really, in a way, one of the few things, because they're all over the map, but, but these are some of the few things that tie them all together. And if you throw out original sin, then you throw out the need for the sacraments. You lose the sacraments, you lose the ministry, you lose the essence of God's word, uh, which is grace through faith alone. I like how you highlight there something that I really enjoy when my guests show that continuity of our confession. And we talk a lot, especially as Lutherans, about how Article 4, as you said, that crowning article for us is the article that church stands and falls on. But it is worth noting as well, as you stated so well, that really all of these things are connected together. And I often put it this way, what you have is kind of like the old-fashioned wagon wheels, right? And you have all these spokes coming in, and the hub is Christ. That's the Christian faith, right? That he came for sinners. You have all these other spokes that come in. And probably it's a gross oversimplification, but when it comes to some of the other denominations and so forth, Basically, what happens is they're missing a few spokes, some more than others. And it's not too long until those spokes start falling out that the entire wheel just falls apart, right? And to me, at least, and again, I will concede this is a gross oversimplification here. But to me, at least, Article 12 is kind of making the point, you're missing so many spokes here that you have just, you've lost Christ. And I think that that's what you were highlighting for us as well, is that we really have disagreement on more than just a few spokes. You know, it's always interesting to me when other Christians or very simple Christians, even within our own denomination and so forth, say, and and they they mean it in the best way, you know, oh, we're basically the same. You know, I, I went to the Baptist church and, you know, yeah, we're basically the same, believe the same things. And it's like, no, we don't really, not, not really at all. It even looks quite different. And it, the reason it looks quite different is because they have very different beliefs on these things as well. And, and again, so many of the spokes are just out that it really does become a heterodox issue where we have differing beliefs, very differing beliefs. And it's not just in the things that you can see in terms of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It really is a different definition of sin. And we've tried to highlight those things as we go through the various articles in the whole book of Concord. I like how you took us back to the Augsburg Confession there, because that's really where we see the break, especially with the first group that we'll get into, the Anabaptists. But before we proceed in a little further here, I want to read at least the first paragraph of this article. As we've kind of talked about setting up this very unique article here as kind of a catch-all article Let's go ahead and get this. So again, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 12, Other Factions, Heresies, and Sects, Paragraph 1. In order that heresies and sects may not be pinned on us silently, for in the preceding explanation we have made no mention of them, We intend at the end of this writing simply to make a list. This list will show the articles in which the heretics of our time err and teach contrary to our Christian faith and confession, to which we have often referred. Now, that's paragraph one. And I didn't read the little subtitle that's at least in the reader's edition here, although we've kind of already mentioned to it. It says, Other Factions, Heresies, and Sects, and it says, That Never Embraced the Augsburg Confession. And again, that's what they're talking about, the end of paragraph one here, that when it says, and teach contrary to the Christian faith and our confession, which we often referred. So again, I like how you took us back to the Augsburg Confession there, because that's really where we see the break, especially with the first group, the Anabaptists. And we, again, we've, we've pointed that out on some of the previous articles. We realized, especially the Anabaptists, 
are not with us on the Lord's Supper. They're not with us on baptism, and we've talked about those things. So go ahead and lay some more of this out for us. Uh, this goes back to the idea that Lutherans being accused of creating these fractures uh, within the church, and, and they're saying, hold on, put on the brakes here for a second. We put out our confession early on. These people have continually rejected this confession. So one of these things is not like the other. So it's not like a matter of, well, there's Eastern Orthodoxy, there's Roman Catholicism, and then all the crazies that left both of those. And Lutherans are lumped into that. Lutherans are saying, no, no, no. What we believe, teach, and confess is based on God's word, God's word alone. Now everybody will say that to some degree. But when it comes to digging into the text, I think you'll see that that's not necessarily the case. And the big differences boil back down to, again, who is God? What's our relationship to him in terms of free will, which the formula goes through, you know, and then what's the work of Christ for us? If our sin isn't that bad, then what did he do? And how does baptism and the Lord's Supper and even confession and absolution, how do these things play into it? So ultimately, the Lutherans are saying, look, these guys have never believed, not even for a minute. It's not like we were together at one point and then they split off. They had never been a part of us ever. We are not like them. They are not like us. Well, and maybe here is a helpful place to lay this out too. And it's difficult to do on a radio show, so I'll do it the best I can. I, I often do this with my Bible classes and confirmation students. Visually, I draw it up on the board or something like that, right? But I think one of the confusing things for a lot of us, as you've already laid out for us, is that you have these breaks from the church. And you go back to 325 AD, break from the East and Western church, and we generally call that Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox, although I think it's just more helpful to say Eastern and Western church. And (laughs) you said you had the patriarch and the pope, and that's for another show, another time to get into the, the deeper parts of that history and the disagreements there. And a lot of times, the way that this would get drawn out, if you're drawing it visually on a board or things, is that you have kind of the Roman Catholic Church that goes back to the beginning from Christ and the apostles. And it's like a river flowing forth or a tree or something, you know, different folks kind of draw it different ways. And then you start getting these branches out. And then they'll show coming off of the Roman Catholic Church the Eastern Orthodox, because they broke from them, right? And then it comes down a little further, and it comes out the Lutherans. And then, and again, I've seen this drawn different ways by different folks, and it starts to break out again, sometimes from the Lutherans or just at the same time as the Lutherans in different branches. So you'll get the Lutherans and then the Reformed Calvinists following John Calvin, the Anabaptists following Ulrich Zwingli, and then all sorts of sub-breaking outs from there as well. And I often say that's actually not a helpful understanding of this because our point here, and I love how it ends there, that teach contrary to our Christian faith, that centers us on the right thing again. Again, orthodoxy. That's what we're concerned with. And so I often highlight and draw out what we really have is we have Christ and the apostles and true Christianity, orthodox Christianity, not Eastern Orthodox, not to be confused with that, right? They're, they're using the term. We could also use the term Catholic, which would be the Western language for it, right? Which is the universal Christian church. And what we have is that true Christian teaching. And what you have is at 325 AD, you maybe have a couple splits out of there from true Christian teaching. What you have is the steady stream of what is true Christian teaching. And then you get down further and you have a branch in the early middle ages and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Like the water gets muddier and muddier if you're using the, the, the river imagery, right? In the Roman Catholicism branch, the Western church branch. And so you have Luther who basically comes along and says, let's return to the Orthodox true Christian teaching again, true Catholicism. And so that's what we believe as Lutherans. And we're not being boastful about this. We're just saying every Christian should be duty-bound to find what is the true Christian teaching because that's where you have assurance of salvation. And so what we want is that steady stream from Christ and the apostles of true, faithful Christian teaching. And you have branches coming out beforehand, and our goal is always to find that true Christian teaching. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that as kind of laying out a, 
an audio visual image for us of what we're talking about here. Yeah, you know, it reminds me, if I remember right, uh, something that Walther wrote, CFW Walther, our first president and everything of the Senate. You know. Anyone who listens to the show knows that I bring him up at every opportunity. Yeah, so, yeah. You'll, so you'll get, get back on again because you've done good. <laughs> I think he, I think it was in his thesis and fellowship in the Lord's Supper, but he says something along the lines of, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't any church want to claim that they're teaching the pure word of God? Like what would be the point of saying, well, it's not that big a deal. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but I think I think it's clear that that he's saying, you know, we, of course, we would want to do that. Of course, we would want to say that. This is our goal. The church is to profess the pure word of God and its purity and truth. So that is a goal of the church. And so, if anybody says that that's divisive and it's factional, then they're basically putting unity above the word of God. And it's a false unity. It's really not even true unity because what unites us other than the word of God, uh, uh, sin, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Our true unity can only be found in Christ and his word because otherwise, right, we just have our fallen human reason and the sinful nature. And there can't be any unity in externals only or just saying that we get along. And so that's really what this article boils down to is we're saying, we don't have unity, and we're just going to basically list these things or, or list these groups and list the things that we don't have unity with them on. Some of these things, is it fair to say, were treated in earlier articles or at least are related to things covered in earlier articles, but we're basically just making sure that we cover our work here? I would definitely say that. I think for them, they were dealing with the issues in the moment. I mean, it's a very human document, you know, this formula of Concord and the book of Concord, because they're not dealing with abstracts. They're dealing with, this is what's happening right in front of us right now. And so, yes, they're going to deal with it in the Augsburg Confession. And yes, Luther's going to write small called articles. And there's going to be other things that have dealt with this previously, but they're going to make sure that for the sake of posterity, they're going to deal with what's in front of them right there because it could grow into something bigger and so they want to make it clear that everybody knows here's where we stand on this stuff in particular. And I think as we go through, you're going to see that they were on to something. They were forward looking by talking about these guys in particular. Before we move on a little bit too, I think I had you on at the very beginning of the formula of Concord. You're kind of my history guy that I go to. I'm sure of it now, actually that you were my history guy that set up the broad overview of the formula of Concord. And you laid out for us at that time that really the context of the writing of the formula of Concord, as you're almost just hinting at there, but I just want to highlight, is that after Luther's death, things were just kind of falling apart. And you had factions even within the Lutherans and influences from some of these other groups that were influencing some of the Lutherans. And that seems to be the main focus of a lot of the formula of Concord. But I wonder, what would your thoughts be then in terms of relating this to the general context of the writing of the formula of Concord itself? Well, I think it's completely relevant to what was going on because, you know, digging a little bit into the history uh, the powder keg of Europe. I mean, if you go back a few hundred years before Luther came around, there were already people inside the Roman Catholic Church that were saying, I don't agree with the Roman Catholic Church. And so it's not like this was something that was anything new. People were saying that there were problems in the Roman Catholic Church. They were wheeling and dealing in Rome and, you know, having auctions for cathedrals, etc., because these were money makers. Everybody knows this. And so you have faithful Christians in the Roman Catholic Church that are saying this isn't right. You had some people that were kind of getting there, but they weren't quite there yet. You had Jan Hus in Bohemia, and Luther kind of associated with him for a hot minute. I mean, this was about 100 years before. But you had John Wycliffe, and he had his followers, the Lollards. That's a fun history. So there, were, there these things were already happening. So there's a lot going on, and Lutherans are trying to tie it all together with God's Word so that people have confidence and hope to know that despite the circumstances that are going on in the world, despite plague and death and war and famine, Christ remains secure through it all. 
that the word of the Lord endures forever. There's a reason why they use that phrase on their symbol. Yeah, I think what you've highlighted really well then is that doctrine is life, as I think Robert Preuss in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate became known for that phrase, and is really true, in, especially in terms of this article and some of the things that we're going to take a break here in a second, but on the other side of the break, we're going to kind of lay out a roadmap of what this article is going to cover. And I think you'll see highlighted really well, just even in the roadmap, and then when we dig into the nitty-gritty of it in subsequent episodes, that this really is connected to the everyday life and the things going on in the context of their everyday lives. And so we'll cover just that brief roadmap on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. continue talking with Pastor Jaime Nava as we are looking at Article 12 from the epitome of the formula of Concord, other factions, heresies, and sects that never embrace the Augsburg Confession. And as I said just before the break, I'd like to lay out a little bit of a roadmap here for us. We're going to have at least a few episodes making our way through this unique article that is kind of a catch-all article as we talked about how we are different in their teachings. So we're not in agreement with them. We're not associated with them. But go ahead and lay out then just that brief roadmap for us. Yeah, sure. So looking at these, in particular, the erroneous articles of the Anabaptists, here in the Formula of Concord, they've got some headings. Articles that cannot be tolerated in the church. Articles that cannot be tolerated in the government. Articles that cannot be tolerated in domestic life. And so you've got church, government, and life, three different places where the, the writers of our confessions here are rejecting what it is that the Anabaptists teach. And so with your permission, I'd like to get a little bit of the history of the Anabaptists, look into them, and see what if they have anything written that kind of goes over De- what they Definitely. Believe. Okay, so Ulrich Zwingli was allied with Luther for a time, and they definitely had some differences. So he ends up in Zurich, Switzerland. And this will be a later place for John Calvin when he shows up and he starts to implement his teachings there. And so he's in Switzerland. And in this place, this is um, they are very heartily independent, right? And they are tough fighters, too. Their mercenaries are known for being tough and so you don't mess with, with Switzerland. And Zwingli is here, and he collects under him a group of people that he teaches. One guy in particular, Conrad Grable, is one of these guys. And this guy is a humanist, so he's very interested in looking at humanity and the way that we've learned. And in particular, he studied Latin, Greek, Hebrew. This was you know, one of the things was getting into original languages and not just having, say, the Latin Vulgate, things like that. So he was very well educated. Now, he early on rejected infant baptism. And that was actually a place where he and Zwingli parted ways. And so there was already a division. Zwingli said, no, you, know, you have to baptize infants. And Grable and others said, no, we don't, we don't agree with that at all. And so Zwingli actually parted ways with these Anabaptists from the beginning. Now, the 
the term Anabaptist wasn't something that the Anabaptists put on themselves. It was something that was maybe given to them or just labeled upon them, kind of like Lutherans. And uh, Anabaptist means to rebaptize. So there are these rebaptizers, and they had some certain teachings and beliefs. Now, they came together. They wrote this Schleitheim Confession of Faith. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to go over some of the articles, which you're going to see repeat here in our Formula of Concord. Yeah, I think this is important context for this article. So they talk about baptism, and it says, Baptism is administered to those who have consciously repented and amended their lives and believe that Christ has died for their sins and who request it for themselves, i.e., a believer's baptism. So they denounce infant baptism. They felt very strongly about the ban or excommunication. Now, this tends to deal with the way that they see original sin because they believe that you can, on this earth, live a perfect, godly life without sin whatsoever. Uh, I remember hearing years ago, I was driving in my truck and I was newly coming back to church listening to a radio program, and this guy says, oh, I haven't sinned in seven years. And I thought, wait, what? I, you know, I almost, almost hit the brakes in my truck. Like, what did he just say? And so uh, I guess my reason for bringing that up is this isn't anything new. These folks already went back and said, look, if your church isn't full of quote-unquote Christians, i.e. people who are proving their Christianity by how they live, i.e. works, and if you're, if you're not finding those people that aren't doing that and kicking them out, you're not a real church. And so excommunication was a big deal for them. Communion. So you had to be baptized, take part in communion, but they believed that communion was just bread and wine. It's not the body and blood of Christ present in the sacrament. Separation from evil was another point. You cannot be in fellowship with the wicked of the world. You have to be completely separate from what's going on with them. Pastors in the church would carry out discipline, teaching, the ban, leading in prayer, the sacraments, supported by the church. So if your church has income from a cell phone tower or rental property from a school or something like that, they would find that very wrong, that the pastors could only be supported by offerings from individuals in the congregation. Pacifism was also a big thing. No violence whatsoever. Now, this gets a little shaky with some of the other Anabaptists, but this was, you know, again, non-resistance is a big deal. And no oaths. You cannot swear an oath of office. You couldn't take any position in civil government. So me as a Navy chaplain, uh, I'd be frowned at real hard or probably banned by somebody in the Anabaptist church. Now, these are general things. The Anabaptists were all over the map. But this was, and is, today, still something that ties Anabaptists together. I mean, they were strongly, in in a way, literal of the Bible, but in other terms, they weren't. It's really kind of bizarre how contradictory they are within themselves. But the biggest things are, you know, original sin doesn't continue. When you decide to choose to follow God, you get baptized. We hear that today as an outward sign of an inward change, which the assumption is you have the ability to do that. So instead of us being spiritually dead and our trespasses and sins, they would say, oh no, you're fully alive and capable in choosing to follow Jesus. And once you do, the way that we all know you follow Jesus is by how you live. So you got a problem with original sin. Uh, I think they had the Trinity pretty well, so that's some place that we would agree with them. But you lose original sin, and then my phrase is you get a sacrament-shaped hole in their lives. So if you don't have baptism that gives forgiveness of sins, that's the washing of regeneration and renewal and a seal of the Holy Spirit, and if you don't have confession and absolution that is binding and loosing sins on earth and in heaven, And if you don't have the Lord's Supper, which is providing the body and blood of Jesus Christ in and with and under bread and wine for the forgiveness of sins, if you don't have God externally giving forgiveness of sins to you and you're all dependent on yourself internally, then you're going to have to find something else, somewhere else, 
to find assurance that you are in, that you are a part of the church. And the way that ends up happening is you look deeper inside yourself for more self-stuff. And if you assume that you're not all sinfully dead, then you're going to find it in works, usually in what you think, how you feel, or what you do. So then the interesting thing is that actually then returns us to pre-Reformation issues. I mean, that was exactly what Luther was so worked up about with the Roman Catholic Church, right? And I think as you've already brought out here today as well, these other groups, especially the Anabaptists, they just wanted to throw everything out that looked and smelled like it was Roman Catholic, except for the theological issues that are very Roman Catholic. (laughs) That's always the great irony to me. And as we see some of the things line up today, it's still the same issues. You have the same theological issues. You're looking to your works, your, your fruits of faith as signs of your assurance instead of looking to Christ and his word as your signed, sealed, delivered assurance of salvation, right? And then it plays out into these articles of their faith, which are obviously very different than ours presented in the Augsburg Confession. So that little subtitle here is correct, that never embrace the Augsburg Confession because you clearly have some different ideas about what's going on here. And I thought it was interesting, though it begins with baptism, and that's something that we cover in our articles of faith, right? Then, and and it calls it breaking of bread, but basically communion. But these other things are, again, very associated with these works, these outward things. And I thought it was interesting that, as you said, the headings that we have here in Article 12, that it says, things that cannot be tolerated in the church. Well, you see things line up there, baptism, breaking of the bread, pastors in the church, office of ministry, right? And maybe some of these other ones too, separation from evil would play in there too. But then you get to the next one, cannot be tolerated in the government. Well, you see issues of the sword, Christian pacifism, and those sorts of things come into play there. And then tolerated in the domestic life. That's where I'd really put, again, probably the separation from evil and not taking O's. Well, O's probably would fit under the government again. And, and you get some bleed through again. They're, they're seeing this as all playing forth from their theology and practice. And we're just saying, you have a very different theology than scriptural theology and from us. And our articles are vastly different, and especially in how we approach them then. Yeah, and, and some other, as I look at it, you know, I'm reminded that there's some other things. One article they get wrong is the kingdom of God in particular, where you find the kingdom of God in the visible church for them. So the invisible church isn't something that is an issue. It's making sure that our visible church is as humanly pure as possible so that we route out anybody who is, you know, drinking or gambling or whatever to the point that they would allow somebody to get divorced if their spouse was non-believing. You say, not a big deal. Well, maybe it was, but you know, for them, theologically, it's okay because we're purifying the church. And for some of the more extreme Anabaptists, it was, we're going to purify the church so much so that we're going to bring back the kingdom of God, peace on earth, And in some cases, they tried to do it through force. There was even cities and monasteries that were captured by Anabaptists, soldiers killed, and eventually they got recaptured by Roman Catholic authorities and soldiers. And some of the things that happened to these extremist Anabaptists were pretty horrible. Early on, once this movement started to take off out of Switzerland, Charles V and even some German princes put some things out there that said, if you get rebaptized, I, I want to say you could be killed for it. I mean, it was, they made it that heavy. I think it was in order to really to prevent this group from growing. Luther and even Melanchthon both said, it might come down to, we need the sword to stop these people because what they're teaching is so wrong that it is leading people to hell. And now, am I okay with that? I, I don't think so. But you can see how extreme that the, the situation became. Uh, one fellow was, was burned at the stake in 1525, the same year that Luther got married. Right? This was five years before the Augsburg Confession is brought before the Holy Roman Emperor. 
you had uh, a lot of persecution and death, burning and torturing and throwing people into the river with a stone tied to them, husbands, wives, entire groups of people, you know, hundreds of people in some cases, utterly destroyed. There was one city that was captured by Anabaptists, and it was recaptured, and you had a group that was in a marketplace, and they said, you know, we'll throw down our weapons if you give us safe passage out. And they were told, sure, you can have that. They threw down their weapons, and they were all destroyed. And so they didn't have it easy early on either. There was a group that ended up in Moravia under Jacob Hutter or Hutter, Yaakov Hutter, if you want, and this was the Swiss brethren that moved up into Moravia, and they were fairly successful there. They were safe there for a number of years, and so that kind of became a hub where things grew out of that. So you get the Moravians. This is related. These, these are directly descendants of the Anabaptists in Moravia. And the, the idea was they, they made Anabaptists more peaceful again, so less anti-government but more monastic, where they're separating themselves from society. Everything is communal. Nobody owns anything. And, you know, it's the idea was they're trying to get back to the early church. Now, if you look at what happened in the early church historically, after everybody sold everything in Acts and lived in this communal system, it all went haywire and went bad. It didn't work out for them. Now, they were anticipating the return of Christ at any minute, which we all should, but Paul had to go and raise money for the folks in Jerusalem who had already sold everything, they had nothing left. And so just because it happened in the early church doesn't mean it's a good model. This was descriptive, not prescriptive, of what happened in Scripture. Well, and as you even bring that into it, we even see issues with their food pantry and things like that before Paul even has to go raise money. And uh, that's how we get Stephen that becomes the first martyr, right? And at the same time, we would also highlight and agree, Luther would have certainly agreed with this, that living in Christian community is a very good thing and to be desired. And we're not saying that just doing that is in itself bad. But again, what is your theology for living as a Christian community? And to me, it's really interesting. Again, it kind of comes back to how they do this here. I'm kind of hung up on this excommunication article yeah. that, you know, you, you, you have to separate them out from you. Of course, this is a scriptural thing, you know, don't pull up the terrors with the wheat, you know, that leave it to Christ to sort out on the last day, the day of judgment, but, you know, care for the church. And again, not to say not to do excommunication, but I found this an interesting connection. So we see a lot of Anabaptists, again, broad spectrum, we're going to get into that here in a second. And we're already starting to see how it's kind of branching out here, but a lot of Anabaptists present in early frontier American Christianity, which lines up at the same time that we have the LCMS Lutherans come over and settle. And interestingly, I stumbled upon this in CFW Walther, again, first president of Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, his pastoral theology, also first president of the seminary, (laughs) right, out of Perry County and then moved up to St. Louis, not to take away from our sister seminary in Fort Wayne that actually has the first charter, but that's a whole nother, whole nother history show. But C.F.W. Walther, in writing his pastoral theology for these students become pastors, writes an interesting line under excommunication, saying that it is not an essential function of the church. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't become. And I'm paraphrasing, as we all paraphrase Walther on this show. But you know, essentially, the idea is against these Anabaptists, and I had to do some looking into that because I was wondering. You know, and this was years ago. But I was wondering, why would Walther make this particular point? And it was because, again, other groups coming and settling in and around them and so forth. I mean, in early American Christianity, especially with these Anabaptist groups, you had things known as shaming benches and all sorts of things that were tied in with this and literally cutting people out of their communities entirely and the Lutherans were wrestling with some of these things as well. And so it was very important for Walther to distinguish, once again, formed by the Book of Concord, our Lutheran confessions himself, and saying, look, this is not essential for operation in the church. It's a good thing to do. It's a rescue mission. 
We're not saying don't practice excommunication where it's necessary to save them and call them back to repentance and faith. But it's not essential for you to sit there and root out every Christian that's living in wickedness. It's not an effective way to even do it. Right. And so I think, again, you, you won't have a church. If yeah, you, you won't do have that. a church. There yeah. will be nobody and there. You won't have any pastors. So yeah, your pastoral right. theology is not even going to be read right here, <laughs> it's, sir. It's gone. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah. I, it's, it's really fascinating how these Anabaptists you know, tried to separate themselves. And I think once they stopped trying to take over cities and monasteries and destroying things, once they got that out of their system by force, then they were allowed to live more, more peacefully. They ended up in the Netherlands under Menno Simons. And again, he removed a lot of these radical ideas, but kept the basic theology. And so if you fast forward, they came over to South Dakota, Pennsylvania. You had the Mennonites. These are the Amish or, you know, the Mennonites that we know of in Pennsylvania. If you want to say, you know, Anabaptists are who, you know, who are they today? You would say Mennonites. That's the Moravians. That's the connection that we have. So there are some teachings like, you know, rejecting infant baptism. And, and part of that, part and parcel of that, you know, is this age of reason where a kid is sinless until he has enough logic, right? So you better hope your kid is pretty dumb for a long time. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, uh, my point is to say that once they're old enough to make a decision for themselves, then they're accountable for their decision to follow Jesus or not. In this theology, until they get to that point, then they are sinless. Now, I don't know what the trigger is. I don't know if there's a specific age. I don't know if there's an IQ test that you have to take in order to know if you have enough reason to decide to follow Jesus or whatever. But it's something that was in the Anabaptist church, but it doesn't. it didn't stay there. You see this in evangelical and Baptist churches. Now, Baptist church, you, you also have connections with, with other denominations, you know, with, with Calvin and with Arminius and other things. And so you don't have, it's not a clean, like, straight from Anabaptist to Baptist. So we have to, we have to cut that off because, you know, Baptists don't, don't live in communes like the Amish and the Mennonites do. They, they do live in the real world. But there are definitely some teachings that have continued to trickle down over time into the denominations around us that haven't gone away. And we have to remember, the way that the Lutheran confessors dealt with is, this is not different flavor of Christianity. This isn't just another option. This is denying infant baptism is heretical. It is against God's word. You are denying the treasures of heaven itself to another human being. You are denying Christ and his work to somebody. That is egregious. Which I think is really important to bring that point to the front and center here because you, you bring in the Amish and the Mennonites, and actually you, you drove down from St. Louis as we we're doing this show today. So we're sitting here in my office in southern Illinois, and I have some neighbors right here. There's actually just down the road an Amish store that I love to go shopping at. They're very wonderful. My dad grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where you have the Pennsylvania Dutch, very large group of Amish. And I've always been kind of fascinated. I love talking with them and understanding their theology and things. And so I'll just make this brief point. You know, one of the things that the Amish are known for is that they have beards, but no mustache. And that's because of their views in being Christian pacifists. And in the early days, those who had mustaches served in the military. And so... They specifically did not have the mustache. They, they shave that still to this day, but keep the beard. Now, that's an issue where it's like, okay, we could care less that we're, we're not seeing eye to eye here, right? right. And even when it comes to military things and so forth, you serve in the military as a chaplain, as a reserve chaplain and everything. We're not against the military, but we're certainly not saying, hey, yeah, let's just go out and fight all the time either. I mean, you know, we have scripture as our guide there too. It's only when necessary, Romans 13, and, and we understand all of that context. And there are famous theologians that are strong pacifists, like Stanley Hauerwas. You know, he, I asked him the question one time, uh, what about chaplains in the military? And he said he would rather see groups of Christians following soldiers along, around, having their own camp, and ministering to them that way 
as opposed to being funded by the government. So, you know, it's not that these things are, are strictly with, you know, the Mennonites. Right. But then to bring back, so, you know, lack of mustache and being pacifist and so forth, not the big thing. But when you're denying who Christ is, what he came for, and how he delivers his gifts to us, that's the level of the heresies that just cannot be tolerated in the church. And I like how you highlight especially baptism, right? And that's where we look at the Amish and we say, I'm sorry, but you have some really dangerous teachings here that are leading people away from Christ. And just very briefly, with just a couple minutes left here, get your parting thoughts on this, just our overview, historical setup, and so forth. But just very briefly, what is the real hub of this then that we need to be concerned with to have clear confession on? All of this Book of Concord is focused on the work of Christ for sinners, period. Now, it's dealing with the way that it works in a real-world setting where you have one teaching that denies original sin. And if you deny original sin, if you say we're not born dead in our trespasses and sins, and you have some involvement in your salvation, then you are reducing the work of Christ. You're saying he did some, but not all. And that is anti-biblical. If you are denying baptism to anybody, that's a little complicated. I won't get into that. But anybody that should be baptized, if you are denying that, then you are denying Jesus. If you are removing the body blood of Jesus from the Lord's Supper, you are denying forgiveness of sins. If you deny absolution, or you make absolution about what you do to follow up, to make sure you can get absolution, then you are denying the complete work of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So all of these things that they're talking about through the formula and through all of the fight is the fight that we are not as important as we think we are. And that's great because that means we trust that God is doing all the work. It's not about us. It takes that burden away from us. And we trust that God is the one who will send his angels to gather the tares and then the wheat to his barn. He's in control. He's the one that's doing it all. And so it's very freeing. But, you know, the devil is pretty bad at coming up with new ideas. He really is because... When you look at the repetition of theology, you're, you keep seeing the same patterns over and over. And I think this is so important to read the book of Concord and to know what is in here, because otherwise we are doomed to repeat the heterodox ideas and the, and the heresies of the past. We will come back to them again. And if we see how they've been defended and how Scripture and Christ has been upheld, then we have something that we can continue to pass on to future generations to know they are safeguarded against devilish nonsense. Well said. And that is Pastor Jaime Nava. Thank you so much for joining us for Concord Matters again today, giving us that great historical background and context. We love having you on for that. And thanks for setting up this Article 12 for us as we look at the various heresies other factions, sects that are out there that are not in agreement with us on the Augsburg Confession. Thank you. And thank you also, dear listener, for joining us for Concord Matters today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.